So there's a theological concept that's pretty important to be aware of as we look at how God is building this new church. <clears throat> and it's rooted in this idea that there's a difference uh, between the people who populate uh, a local church body and, and the true, known only to God, uh, true church. And the terminology they use is that there's a distinction between what we might call the visible church versus the invisible church. You ever heard of this? Simply stated, the visible church is what you can see. It's, it's this. It's a, it's a congregation, a worship service. It's occupied by the people that are on your membership role. The invisible church, however, is all of Christians from God's point of view who actually are truly and genuinely converted. These are not the posers, right? The roles of this church, of course, though, are much harder to discern. What I find interesting, though, is how much people have fought over this concept of the history of the church. I mean, let's be honest. Lots of us would like to believe that everybody who comes to church is really, truly a Christian, and there's no hypocrisy anywhere. But while at the same time, we recognize that spiritual fakers can really do a lot of harm to the integrity of the church. And so what you have for the last, I don't know, 500 years of Protestant history is all these denominations who are working very hard to find, you know, the one true church most pure. Spoiler alert, <laughs> they haven't found it and they won't. But very weirdly, there's another reaction that's a little more subtle because what you'll find is many nominal Christians, Christians who are Christians in name only, will sort of look at the messiness of the local church and they'll use that as an excuse to never be a member of a church. Well, they'll say, you know, I don't belong to any church like you do. Uh, I belong to the invisible church. Uh, we hold services in my pajamas sometime around 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Uh, no one's really invited, but that's how I worship, right? It always reminded me of how Charlie Brown used to uh, make his comment about, you know, I don't have a problem with humanity. It's people I can't stand. Uh, one of my favorite writers, Peter Lightheart, talks about in his book, The Kingdom and the Power, something I think is hilarious about this mindset. He said there's a lot of Christians that are sort of like a man who's going through a midlife crisis, and he dreams of a perfect woman to replace his aging wife. So the concept of a perfect invisible church is used to rationalize his abandonment of what looks to him like a messy, visible church. He says, look, nowhere to be sure does the New Testament writers flinch from a full acknowledgement of the fact that there's sin and turmoil within the church. The apostles, I'm sure, would no doubt have grimly nodded if they were told of some wit suggestion that the church is a little bit like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the rain outside, you couldn't stand the stink on the inside. That was a little funnier than that, but that's okay. Those of you following along with the sermon can laugh along. But here's my point. Corruption within the church, that's not a big headline maker. I'm just simply saying that if, if you decide that I'm going to abandon literal physical bodies of church for a perfect invisible church, you're going to render chunks of the New Testament com completely irrelevant. You have to have it. I love to look at places like Hebrews 13, 17, where it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Well, how are you going to obey that verse if you're not a member of a local church to embody that? So I'm saying that the distinction between visible and invisible is perfectly appropriate, but not appropriate as an excuse to refuse to sort of stand shoulder to shoulder with the ragtag band of crazy people that are lined up in the pews next to you this morning. 
So like we saw two weeks ago, the church is inevitably going to face assaults from the outside in, especially from the liberal portion of the political spectrum. But what we find this morning is that the spirit-filled community is also threatened from within. And that there are cancers that can grow up that are incredibly judgment-worthy and are embodied in the spirit of Ananias and Sapphira. In other words, there is just as much danger from within as there is from without to this early movement of the church. So I want you to look this morning at three different cancers that the Spirit has to eradicate in order to preserve the forward going of this church. We want to see that they're living in fear, that they're separating faith and practice, and finally that they're faking spiritual piety. Let's look at that first one. The Spirit has to rid us of living in fear. Look at verse 31. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Okay, here you go. You've got another attribute of how you know when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You get bold. This, to be Spirit-filled means to be filled with boldness. Why? Well, you've got to go to another place in Scripture, I think, to really get that unpacked, especially Romans 8.15, where Paul says this. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Simply put, the work of the Spirit is to oppose a spirit of fear. The Holy Spirit is the opposite of fearfulness. We become fearless when he shows up. How does he do that? He convinces us that we're children of God. That's the idea. The Spirit convinces you that God really is your Father and that Jesus and you are co-heirs of the world. And the point is, the more deeply and more consistently you know that fact, the less you care about your material being. The less you care about your stuff. Jesus could have had someone of a similar experience when he was baptized back in Matthew 3.17. Remember when the Spirit comes down upon Jesus as he comes up out of the watering area? And the voice from heaven, his Father, says, This is my Son, my beloved Son. I'm so pleased with him. And with that affirmation, Jesus is empowered out into the wilderness to go through assault after assault from the devil himself empowered by his sonship as he went along. Okay, so with that in mind, go back to verse 32, where we see the result of that boldness means that people are radically generous. Look what it says. It says, nobody said that any of the things belonged to him and was his own, but they had everything in common. In other words, that boldness was most clearly seen in the way they dealt with their possessions. And what they did was, is they stopped calling it like it was their own. They shared it radically. Now look, before we dive into this, let me get one small thing out of the way. There is a progressive end part, portion of the church, who see socialism in these verses. That is a, a forced sharing of resources among people. Problem is, it's just not there. Look, Marxism can only ensure the sharing of resources, well, at the business end of a gun, quite frankly. But that's not what's happening here. These people were sharing willingly from their hearts. There's nothing in this passage that's sort of negating what we would know as the rights of private ownership. It's just saying that there's a spirit-filled boldness that made them think about their money like it was not something to be grasped and clung to. Now, how did it do that? Well, that's where it gets interesting. Because these spirit-filled people 
are demonstrating, I think, a fact that when we lack real generosity to those around us, it may not be so much stinginess as it is fearfulness. Think about this connection. The more a Christian is assured of God's love for them, the more secure and spiritually confident they become in that assurance, the more generous they become. Look, think about this. The people gave up their homes and they gave up all, they opened their purses to each other. In the Old Testament, there was a requirement to give away 10% of everything that you earned. In the New Testament, they gave away whatever it took. Why? I think it has to do with, the, with, with how money works on us. Money, I think, in many ways, is one of the chief ways of making you feel secure in life. Does it not? We feel safe when we've got money. It's not, money is not always about the great toys that it buys. Money is a lot about the peace of mind so that I can know that I can afford my life. So is it not possible that part of my stinginess is due to my insecurity about just how transient money it can be? comes and goes. It may not be that our problem is stinginess. It's that we're scared. We're not wrestling so much with greed as we are cowardice. But when the Spirit comes in and fills these people up, they're bold to give. I heard one preacher say, our bank accounts are not going to last any longer than our lives. So we might as well give it away. There's nothing else to fear. These earliest believers were convinced that they had won the spiritual lottery. And so the Spirit comes and shows them that what they can do now is that the gospel is so good that it demotes your possessions. It doesn't eradicate them. It just demotes them from being the most important thing in life. So I don't hold them like this. I can hold them like this. Is there any who have need? That's the Spirit working in boldness and working against the first cancer, which is the cancer of living in fear. The second cancer, though, we have is seeing these people wrestling with separating their faith from their practice, separating our faith from our practice. In other words, what you have here that was threatening this early church, you see in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is subtle, but really important. Luke is saying that as they preach the resurrection... It issued forth in community and in generosity in that community. Why? Because here's the deal. What, what the resurrection neutered was the fear of death, of all things, the big fear. And so what it, ha- what it made them do was, this, if I'm not afraid of death anymore, why am I holding on to all this stuff? Because once that fear is removed, there's no more obstacles to generosity either. And what we're saying is, is it helps rid us of this temptation to live differently with what we say and the way we act. And look, doctrine means very little to the watching world until it meets the daily practice of human life, does it not? Commentator Dick Lucas says this. He says, in other words, the apostles talked about the power of Christ's resurrection with arguments and evidences, while the community embodied and demonstrated the reality of Christ's resurrection with newness of heart, life, and relationships. You might have heard Christians refer to it as wanting to keep together the ministry of word and the ministry of deed. We want to do word and deed ministry. In other words, it's it's impossible to tell people about the gospel until you're ready to embody that gospel in the principles of gospel life afterwards. And it's a cancer to the body of Christ to have very rich doctrine, but no um, incarnation 
where it's being fleshed out in tangible ways. And here's the thing. I want to I do a little application in a direction you may not think that I'm going in. I find it interesting that it says that they gave their testimony. I say that when you and I start talking about the word testimony, we tend to think about the process of evangelism. Like, I don't know about you, but when we think about evangelism, especially in the last hundred years or so of evangelism in American Christianity, we tend to think of a presentation, a presentation that maybe perhaps you memorized and that you hope to find opportunity to share with someone, to present to them in the hopes that they will, they will what, accept Jesus, (laughs) which is actually a funny little phrase if you think about it. It's another sermon for another time. But what's happening is this cancer is a tr- in the truncated version of evangelism is to suddenly take the weight of evangelism and put it all on the presentation. In other words, we begin to sort of long for snappiness of logic. We get super nervous that someone's going to ask us a question that we can't answer. And what it does is it kind of makes evangelism sort of the property of the extroverts. Introverts are like, please tell me that I don't have to go talk to somebody new, please. <laughs> Here, I'm not critiquing necessarily the substance of these gospel tracts and presentations that we hand out. I'm just saying if that is the sum total of how we think about evangelism, the tendency is going to be able to push the reality of the faith to be something purely intellectual, something mental, something theoretical. Now, don't get me wrong. It's certainly not less than that, but boy, it's so much more. I do think that evangelicals are wrestling with some what I would consider to be very bald multiplication uh, 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 strategies for advancing the faith in the last 50 years. But it may just be that one of the reasons why we see a shallowness in American Christianity is because we don't realize that in order for people to believe in God, they first have to see God demonstrated to them in their lives, which is so much more than the presentation. Look, think about this. Can someone really grasp that God forgives sinners if they don't see tangibly a group of people who forgive each other in the church. I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus gets really cooked up in places like Matthew chapter 18 about the fact that we won't forgive each other. Yeah, don't do that. It'll, It'll rattle you that particular passage. How about this? Can we really go to a poor person and tell them about the fact that Jesus will fill the empty places in their soul without filling the empty places in their stomachs? Can I really go to people who are distraught by a lack of assurance of God's love and hope that they get over it if they don't ever see that you're committed to them day in and day out in love and service that melts them into the joy of that security? Look, what you begin to realize is the Spirit came to make these people whole people without any difference between their stated beliefs and the way they acted. That was real evangelism. That was real testimony giving. So that's the second cancer, this separating of faith and practice. But thirdly, and this sets us up nicely for faking spiritual piety. This is the third cancer that has to be weeded out. Because without that background, you're not going to understand what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And I'll be quite frank with you, I think that's a terrifying story. Is it just me? I mean, what a violent experience of seeing people uh, being judged in that way. But I want to make sure, first of all, that we know exactly what they're being judged for. This is crucial. Look back at verses 36 and 37. It turns out in chapter 4, we've got this really great guy named Joseph. 
He's so great and so cool and so wonderful that he actually is called the son of encouragement. Barnabas is his nickname, right? This is the well-respected, popular guy that I'm sure everybody wants to be. But imagine off to the side, you have Ananias and Sapphira. And they're looking over and thinking to themselves, wow, that's a great guy. He sold a field and gave it all to the apostles. Now, that is the way to do it. And he's getting a lot of attention. I know we'll sell our field too. So they go out and they sell the field. But then all of a sudden, they're taking a look at the bag of money that they got for selling it. And their eyes get wide. They're like, ugh, that's a lot of money. I know. Let's keep a portion of it ourselves. But then we'll just tell everybody that we gave it all. And so they do that. Well, here's the point. you got to understand that Ananias and Sapphira are not being judged because they kept the money. You know, in verse 4, Peter's saying pretty clearly, Ananias, you could do whatever you wanted with the money. It was yours to begin with. It had nothing to do with the fact whether you sold the field or whether you didn't. Why are you trying to make us think that you were more generous than you were? What's the deal? John Stott says, Apostles' complaint was not so much that they lacked honesty, but they lacked integrity. They wanted the honor of being known as a a big giver, as a deep pocket. Therefore, their motive for giving wasn't God's honor. It was theirs. It was hypocrisy, pious pretense, uh, simulated holiness. And the Holy Spirit, working through Peter, delivers a death sentence to him and his wife for doing so. Which, at the very least, tells us it was a heinous sin in God's sight. And the Spirit was going to have no part of it. Now look, I promise you, you're not being honest with yourself. If you don't look at that story and kind of like, whoa, 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 whoa. The death sentence? I mean, mean, so they exaggerated a little bit. Here you go, the weirdos in the Bible acting strangely. Okay, but bear with me for a second, because my premise is simply this, that when you really start to dig into the anatomy of hypocrisy, I think you'll see that I don't know there could have been anything more damaging to the early church's witness than this. G.K. Chesterton is the one who said the greatest argument against the truth of Christianity is Christians. (laughs) God's judgment on these people I'm submitting to you is nothing is because there was nothing that was more damaging to their witness than spiritual pretense. You and I, most of the time, when we get sort of fixated on the idea of hypocrisy, we get worried about those people outside of the church and what they say. You know, they look at me and go, well, I don't go to church because all those people in church are a bunch of hypocrites. Wave us off because of it. Actually, don't get defensive when people say things like that. It's true, <laughs> okay? But the point of the matter was, is a lack of integrity is oftentimes given by people from the outside of the church for the reason why they don't want to go to church at all. But you know what? I'm not worried about that group for this morning's discussion. More important for our purposes is what fake spiritual piety does inside the church. Because hypocrisy ends up, as it were, being the most radical reversal of really what is the most compelling trait of what these early churches were. Why? Look, think about this. Because in order to embrace the gospel, in order to to confidently call yourself a Christian at all, think about what you had to admit. Number one, you had to admit that you are a lousy sinner. You had to admit that there was nothing good inside of you. Not only that, you also had to admit that the things that you call good inside of you actually aren't good at all, but they're just as fouled up as the other. 
And that is actually the first principle. That's step one into Jesus' church. Yeah, at least it ought to be. In other words, admitting you're a sinner is not just the first step into Christianity, but here's my argument for this early church. It was also the most attractive thing, too. In other words, the thing that ended up being the most inviting to all these congregation of people was the fact that they were owning it all. Think about this for a second. When was the last time that you gathered with a group of Christians and somebody began to share a struggle, like a genuine struggle, to the point where you're like, whoa, I guess we're getting real right here. Didn't for just a second right there, you all of a sudden think to yourself, oh, you too. (laughs) You too. Suddenly you feel connected, maybe just a little less lonely in that moment. You thought, maybe I can be loved like this. Maybe there's hope for me. Authenticity and vulnerability, I would argue, are the base note of Christian fellowship. This this is where it's the gasoline that fires real Christian fellowship. It's the very thing. And of course, opposite of that, if we're full of hypocrisy, the folks on the inside of the church, we can't trust each other anymore. Spiritual posturing simply means that everybody around me is putting on a false face. We spend all of our time trying to make sure we look like we're people who have it all together. That's false piety. And what it does is it creates a community where nobody feels comfortable to admit that they're struggling. Which means, in turn, nobody's becoming a Christian. Because that's the first step to be a Christian, is owning all of my, all of my stuff. This is the reason why we, don't have, we have communities that are full of, that lack honesty and lack repentance and lack genuineness. It's because of hypocrisy. And so when all of a sudden Peter and the Spirit begin to see this hypocrisy embodied in Ananias and Sapphira, he's like, ah, 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 that, that'll stop it. That is the, that's the cancer. We've got to direct all of our chemo in that direction. The church was growing with such speed because it was a place where people could let their guard down. It was real. It was real people. Again, from Dick Lucas, he says, Lying and hypocrisy means the death of radical, loving, supernatural, spiritually com- uh, com- spiritual community, which was being so powerfully used to spread the gospel. Okay, so what does this mean for us uh, as we finish this? Well, it means that the story of Ananias and Sapphira ought to make us uncomfortable, but not in the way you think that it should. Because you and I share in Ananias' sin when we try to make other people think that we're more spiritual than we are. When we try to make people think that we pray more than we do. Or we try to keep people from seeing that we really don't have it all together. When we ever so slightly embellish those stories about ourselves to kind of cast us in a much better light. Look, don't you see how possible it is, even likely, that we could be the most zealous evangelist giving our testimony on a regular basis, sharing gospel outlines with so many people, but all the while, because it's done with an obnoxiousness that's born out of insecurity and fear, it's going to do the opposite. It's going to repel people. Brene Brown, in many ways, is the foremost expert, I would say, in our day of the value of, of a vulnerable community when she says this. This is as good a quote as you've gotten all week, I promise you. She says, true belonging has no bunkers. I I wish I could do the whole lesson on that one. She says, we have to step out from behind the barricades of self-preservation and brave the wild. When we race to our customary defenses, political belief, race, religion, you name it. 
We don't have to worry about being vulnerable or brave or trusting. We just have to toe the party line. Except doing that is not working. Ideological bunkers may protect us from everything except for loneliness and disconnection. Huddled behind them, we're left unprotected from the worst heartbreaks of all. Do you see what she's saying? She's saying there's something worse than sort of letting people know that you don't have it all together. And that's making people think that you have it all together. Because all that means is that you're lonely and disconnected. Look, it brings to mind such, a, such one of the more troubling aspects of hypocrisy. It's not so much what it does to the community. It's also what it does to your insides. Hypocrisy, sort of keeping people at a distance and not letting people in, creates what we have, for lack of a better illustration, in Dante. Remember you had to read Dante's Inferno when you were in high school or college or whenever? You know, when Dante travels with his, with his guide down to one of the lowest levels of hell, guess who occupies the lowest levels? Hypocrites. And Dante describes him as walking around with these gorgeous, beautiful, glistening cloaks. The cloaks go all the way down to the ground. But the closer that, that Dante gets to the cloaks, he finds that they're all made of lead. Heavy, weighing them down, pulling them down. And they all walk around and scream the same thing. They say, oh, weary mantle of eternity. Like that's the deal. As beautiful as a hypocrite may be in appearance, they carry this debilitating weight throughout their whole life. Suppressing also, by the way, the life of the church, which is why God has to zap it out. Look, let me ask you the question this way. Why was it that you got emotional, like I did, at the end of the movie The Help? Remember watching the, 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 the conflict go on between Abilene Clark and Miss Hilly, <laughs> the contemptuous Miss Hilly? At the very end of the movie, Abilene looks at her and she goes, Oh, Miss Hilly, all you do is scare and lie and try to get what you want. You're a godless woman. And then she says, Ain't you tired, Miss Hilly? Ain't you tired? Hypocrisy is exhausting. And the reason why we've got to look at this is because we're trying to see the book of Acts as a way of helping us here, you, clarify our mission. And here's the thing, here's the thing, we are growing. Look around. A lot of new people here, a lot of folks wanting to join, a lot of people that are interested in our church. And what that means is there will always be an inertia that's pulling us away because we're all sinners, that's pulling us away to raise ourselves up as a community of very well-respected people. Some of you may be contemplating joining a church for the very reason that you don't want anyone to ask you those hard questions about yourself. <laughs> because when I'm a member of a church, of course I've got it all together. I'm a member of Christ Perez. So the Bible is constantly saying, mm -mm -mm -mm. We've got to pull ourselves away to exercise what it means to be a community that says, I am not that guy if you're looking for the perfect person. And I realize that we sit there oftentimes in the midst of our prayers and we start thinking like, ah, I don't know if I could ever go and tell that pastor that last week I almost hit her. I don't know if it's time for me to go and talk about the fact that I don't know what to do about my children. They're so out of control. I don't think I could ever talk to my small group in an appropriate context about th this debilitating struggle with sexual addiction. I, I know, I'll, I'll fix it on the inside. I'll, I'll put on the face. I'll make sure everybody knows, he's great. 
we'll do that nice southern sort of proper thing that we do. Look, what's happening is the Bible's trying to say, Mm-mm-mm. that'll never produce it. That'll only squash any sense of community that we're trying to be. Would to God that what God is raising up here is a group of people that could come in and know that they can be honest and say, yeah, no, no, I, go back to that sin part. That's me. And there's plenty more where that came from. Would to God that that would be what drew us together in Oxford, <laughs> the city of appearances, right? We're a city of appearances. What if we were an island in the midst of that stream of affected, humble people who long to see God's truth go out into the world? What if? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, if that's true, it's only going to happen because your Holy Spirit fell upon us in, in Pentecostal power, not to manifest itself in magic tricks, but to manifest himself in a sense of, of brokenness so that we can actually pull someone aside, not in front of the whole world, but pull someone aside and say, hey, I'm struggling. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's my children. Maybe it's a small group. Who knows? But Father, make us to be that kind of community that is drawn together by your Spirit. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.